Welcome to Generation Digital Workforce, the podcast that's here to explore the role of robotic process automation and other digital technologies. Whether you're just getting started or you're looking for advanced strategies and tactics, if you're curious about where human and digital workers are coming together to transform the future of work, then this podcast is for you. All right, let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. Before we dive into the episode today, I just wanted to give a quick overview of what you'll be hearing. We recently hosted a webinar called the Automation Autobahn Beyond RPA, and we thought this content would be interesting for you guys over here on the podcast too. In this webinar, you'll hear from Evelyn Ehrlich, Research Director at Research in Action, and Colin Redbond, Senior Vice President of Emerging Technologies at Blue Prism. As you've probably been hearing, the global transformation to digital has been immensely accelerated due to COVID and will progress even further in 2021 and beyond. So what's next for intelligent automation? Evelyn and Colin walk through the next innovations in intelligent automation and explore how transformation is happening at speed on the Automation Autobahn. I did also want to point out before we get started that since this was originally recorded as a webinar, there are a couple of times that our speakers reference slides that they're showing, including a very interesting vendor selection matrix. So if you'd like to see what was shared in the slides, we have two options for you. First, we welcome you to visit blueprism.com slash webinars and search for Automation Autobahn, and Autobahn is spelled A-U-T-O-B-A-H-N, and you'll find the event there, and you'll be able to take a look at the slides as you watch the event, or you can email us at podcast at blueprism.com, that's podcast at blueprism.com, to request a PDF copy of the deck. All right, I think that wraps it up for me. So without further ado, let's jump into the recording. Hello, and welcome to today's webinar. My name is Evelyn Ehrlich, and I am very excited to be here with you today on the Automation Autobahn, way, way beyond RPA with Blue Prism. Now, if you have not been on the Automation uh, Autobahn before, or in general on the Autobahn, I am welcoming you. Hopefully you will enjoy our uh, 60 minutes together here, very excited. I also want to encourage to ask questions, so please let us know. There is fantastic time at the end of this to ask questions. We'll wait until the end because this way we can actually have a little bit of a fireside chat, which this is intended to be. And with that, let me quickly introduce myself. So my name is Evelyn Ehrlich, as I already said. I'm the Chief Research Director at Research in Action. I have been there for now almost three years. Before that, I was a Vice President and Research Director at Forrester Research, conducting research on a variety of topics relative to IT automation and automation in general. I'm happy to be joined by a wonderful gentleman who I've gotten to know over time now. We both are riding Harleys, actually I'm riding it on the back of my husband's Harley and actually Colin is riding it himself. So we've had some very great exchanges on some fun talk, but also talked a lot about Blue Prism and RPA. So with that, Colin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks Evelyn. Uh, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for the invite. So yeah, I'm Colin Redbond. I'm SVP of Emerging Technology at Blue Prism. So right now my role is really to own the technology strategy 
for Blue Prism. So I'm responsible for basically uh, working out how we're going to deliver on our product, product strategy and looking into the future, you know, one, one to five years ahead to think about where we need to go next. My background, I've, I've uh, been at Blue Prism for just over four years now, which is um, quite a long tenure in our, in our terms, um, you know, the hyper growth we've, we've been in over the last few years. The organization has grown at an incredible rate. But before that, uh, similar, similar to you, actually, um, I've, I've spent most of my career working with automation products in one shape or another for, for the past sort of 20 plus years. So um, looking forward to the conversation. Super, great. So we have a master here uh, of Cluberism, and Colin has a lot of uh, knowledge relative to the topic. So please take advantage of both of us relative to asking questions. So let's get started. Let me give you a quick of a preview. We want to make this interactive, so Colin and I will have conversations, but we also have slides, of course, prepared for you, so you can follow along uh, these, in these slides. We'll talk a little bit about why RPA is so important. We'll talk through the differentiation and the definitions of it. We'll go in depth uh, relative to some of the critical success factors, challenges, and then really the key of a lot of our conversation will be around the future and how do you actually go about RPA. So look forward to have this conversation. So I would say buckle your seatbelts, I think that's most important, and let's join us and let's go relative to this drive. So quick introduction, this year, 2020, has certainly been a challenge, and I think that's most likely an understatement. We've had tremendous challenges with uh, pandemic, we've had unrest, we've had election and whatever else. And I've been actually watching all of that as part of the research I am doing from a perspective of an industry analyst. And I have to say that the pandemic itself, of course, as very sad it is and um, as challenges it has given us, Relative to some of the automation and some of the technology and some of the cultural changes I've seen when I spoke to enterprise organizations and to, of course, my vendor partners, I think there has been tremendous change. There has been tremendous adoption of technology, not just RPA, but RPA in specific. There has been a lot of uh, introductions of new technologies, including inside RPA and other areas. And, of course, there has been significant shifts in culture now, culture not just from working from home, which all of us had to do, and hopefully all of you are not yet fatigued by it because we still have some time to, to do that, but also in terms of culture, how we approach our jobs and how we do our functions and how the different functions in a business teams, in the business and in the enterprises are working. And so... I think tremendous success have been, to some extent, the introduction and the, the leverage of RPA across many uh, industries and many factors. We'll get to that, and Colin has prepared some excellent examples. But before, there are a couple of uh, key areas additionally, which from a technology perspective, which I think are worthwhile mentioning. So. Of course, I already mentioned remote work. We all are in our offices uh, as much as we can, but if we cannot, we work remote. That causes some challenges relative to how do we are collaborating and how we are actually working and doing our stuff, but also it helps us shift into 
I would I would rather argue it opens our our mind a little bit on what are some key tasks and processes we might need to automate and rethink. Second, Agile. Agile isn't really new. Agile has been around. I think it's a long manifesto. A lot of organizations and enterprises have adopted it, and it's still growing. I do a lot of research around DevOps, of course, and we see tremendous adoption both in Agile and enterprise DevOps. Cloud, nothing new anymore, but the adoption of cloud, hybrid cloud, public clouds, private clouds in general, or how we consume our services and applications, of course, has changed as well, a tremendous accelerator of technology and has given a lot of enterprises challenges, of course, but also a lot of advantages. And then uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, something I am very, very uh, eager and actually where I sit in the uh, German region of Stuttgart, they're building up a kind of second Silicon Valley around artificial intelligence, which, which is great pros and cons on both sides of that topic, and we'll explore a little bit about that. And then last but not least, in combination with robotic process automation is the intelligent automation. And I won't talk too much about it because Colin will uh, give us a lot more details on that uh, in a later section. So these are some of the technologies, including RPA, which I've seen from a perspective of an analyst in uh, adoption and from market research, we see the same from an adoption perspective. Now, let's uh, do some, uh, I think it's important to do some level setting because many times when I had conversations either over the phone or when we still could travel in events, there were a lot of conversations around what is it, what are all these topics, as you can see here, and what are the differences. So Colin, tell us about traditional automation, intelligent automation, and RPA. How are they related? How are they different? Yeah, sure. So I, I would start in the middle here. I mean, my, my background, as I said, is, is, is automation for quite a long time. and even if you look right back to the mainframe era, there's always been automation. So the way I would kind of position traditional automation is it's very technology and developer heavy. It requires high, a high degree of skill to manage, create those automations, and generally you're, you're, you're looking at scripting languages and APIs and quite technical concepts to instrument um, those kind of automation capabilities. Then when RPA came along, or at least if we talk about enterprise class RPA, what it did was it took some of the best practices from traditional automation, so things like uh, you know how do you build in resilience and error handling and those kind of things, but it enabled a new breed of business developers to start to create automations using you know a combination of using the graphical interface to build that automation, but also simplifying some of those other technical integrations like APIs. And then intelligent automation is really the evolution beyond that where what we're looking at now is this combination of technologies that really start to deliver a more human-like capability to automate. So it's giving the, you know, giving the digital worker eyes to see and a brain to reason and um, higher level communication and collaboration skills. That's kind of how I would position those three. Okay, that's a quite an important backdrop um, for the continuation of this. So recognize uh, what you said on intelligent uh, automation for everybody. So let's just make sure that we we uh, uh, make sure we understand that. All right, fantastic. Now, 
In our research around the different vendors and the topic at Research in Action, we actually um, do a lot of work around collecting data around use cases. So here you see when we asked, and again, the sample size is relatively large, it's about 1,500 enterprise IT managers who all have budget responsibilities, right? So they are, and they're global. You can see there is a little bit of a difference between how enterprises are actually planning or have leveraged RPA. I'm just going to use RPA because it sounds easier than always saying robotic process automation. 37% are saying, yeah, we're using it or plan on using it in our service desk and in our customer services department. And many of you probably have or some of you might have already deployed some of that or you have been on the receiving end where you have connected in a customer service situation. I certainly have. Second, the business teams, so marketing and sales teams who have leveraged RPA for tasks or processes or intelligent work is the second one. Then we have some, some of course, are saying, hey, we don't really have a plan right now. Now, that could be due to they have other priorities. They might have some challenges relative to, to budget, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is a lot of uh, organizations who 11% are doing some repetitive tasks, very simple reporting, data entry, et cetera, et cetera. So it's almost like a little, there's a lot of, to some extent, sophistication around functional areas of business and IT. And then there's some back office and some repetitive tasks and some, some no plans of such. However, more important, I think, is how and what could that look like in the future? So, Colin, I, I want to ask you about anything you see which is f from a future perspective as you look at the technology and you're making the plans and you, you're making the calls of what is necessary. What do you see in the crystal ball there relative to these functional areas and the use cases? Yeah, so it's a really interesting one because I think what we're what we're starting to see is as always, particularly with RPA, there's always been this focus on repetitive work and on looking for specific processes to automate. As an organisation, what Blue Prism is really starting to do is to look beyond that. And we're seeing this with some of our customers as well. So, so what we're really trying to do is to start looking beyond processes to automate and start looking for how we go about transforming a business and how do we use the power of a digital workforce to be able to help customers do that and if we play that out and, and think about how that actually works we see it as being really uh, kind of categorized in these three waves and this is a, this is the journey that we see our our customers go through broadly speaking so in wave one of the journey what organizations are generally doing is they're looking at how do I successfully capture uh, productivity and efficiency gains and that's where you kind of see this balance towards you know productivity and efficiency as being uh, some of the some of the things that people are, are getting out of automation in, in the first wave. But once you've implemented um, a digital workforce effectively, if you've got the right sort of frameworks around it and the right organizational buy-in, then in wave two, you can start to set your sights on driving improvements in business performance and, and kind of transcending some of those business silos and functional areas by using the, the, the digital workforce to be able to kind of connect things together. And then in wave three, um, which is really where we want to get to and where some of our more mature customers are getting to, we're kind of looking at the automation pioneers here that are going even further and using automation to, to kind of spearhead transformation, introducing new products and service in, services into the um, operation that were you know, previously would have been really difficult without a digital workforce 
because you just don't have the agility to be able to to react at the pace uh, that technology and uh, and um, market dynamics are moving at. Interesting. I like these waves because, to some extent, I've seen um, organizations starting at wave one. They are looking, as I said, at efficiency and productivity, but then, to some extent, are failing to recognize that there is more to gather and more connection to make across the different silos. I know we'll talk a little bit about that later. So that that second step really to bring it up bigger into bigger performance, really giving ROI from a perspective of agility and from a perspective of speed and quality and and so on. And then even later, the third one, it's like complete transformation, almost like crossing that chasm is happening in wave two. And then as you have exited wave two or while you are in wave two, start wave three is is key. Very interesting. Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head there, really. It's like it is crossing a chasm, I think, to get from, to get out of that that first wave, it does take it does take a different sort of mindset and a different approach and a much more strategic approach to automation and to adoption of, uh, of, of the, uh, the technologies. If you just look at it as a technology strategy, then you're probably never going to get much beyond wave one. If you look at it mm-hmm. as a fundamental organizational uh, and transformation strategy, that's where those, those second and third waves start to, uh, to come into play. Uh-huh. Let's explore that a little bit more because I actually brought some data. So when we asked uh, in the research we've done on why organizations were looking for RPA, there were, of course, you can see here evidence of wave one, right, the automation of the manual and repetitive tasks. Examples are processing sales data, for example. Even I would say the service desk where, as I am an ESM or enterprise service management or ITSM, IT service management analyst as well, I see the combination of RPA in the service desk in the customer support area where there is, for example, the provisioning of some, be it a software or an asset, fairly repetitive and really not a great fun task to do could be automated away so that the service desk employee can be doing much, much more better things, right? So really freeing up the employee's routine or freeing up the employee's brain to leverage that individual for better tasks. So that is the second one, which I just mentioned. I also saw and I'm seeing and have conversations um, with customers who are actually are recognizing that in the past, seeing this more as disruptive, seeing that this is disruptive, but in a positive way, the disruptive work actually value is being valued as being and being recognized by organizations. Particularly, we see some organizations, and we've asked them relative to the labor savings of as much as 60%. So particularly in organizations where there is leverage or shortage of skills in key areas, having the possibility to upskill people or side skill people, I do a lot of research on skills as well, I think is, is tremendous. And so having that and then, of course, with the adoption in uh, eliminating human error, which is, of course, still the biggest challenge, right? If we see most of the time if there is an issue in either the business or in IT, it's some human error. Somebody did this, the tricky uh, control X or control C or whatever key or whatever disconnect they have made. I think there's a hidden, there's a hidden benefit of that last one as well, which is that there's a, um, you know, people tend to look at the headline number as being how much how much work have I taken out by creating an automation? 
you know, the specific tasks that the, that the, uh, the digital worker is automating. There's also a work avoidance aspect to that, which is linked to that uh, reduction in errors. And there was a there was a num there was a metric I saw. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think something like 30 or 40 percent of work is created as a result of uh, human error. And obviously, if you if you're automating if you're automating those tasks and you're, and you're reducing the errors from that task, then you're also preventing work from happening downstream. And that's 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 one of the hidden benefits, I think. Yeah. And, and essential, an essential shift in thinking about automation, I see leaders are starting to recognize that, um, which is great. So that's fantastic. Of course, growth has happened. There is a, an incredible amount of growth within the vendors, and we see solid growth within the vendors. A couple more things, decreasing cycle times for activities, right? Particularly if we think about it now, let's take um, our times in, in this next normal, COVID and the pandemic, activities which we need to do in healthcare or in the financial industries or in the customer services where we actually need to make sure that we have things done fast but also reliable without producing errors which we can't really afford. So I think, to your point, Colin, I think that's, that's great. That's great uh, very, very beneficial and very compelling to, uh, to organizations. Let's shift gears a little bit. So we talked a little bit about definitions. We talked about the different waves and how do you uh, go there and what is possible. So I think there is a little bit of a roadmap uh, in those waves. I think those are very important for all of you listening in to recognize. I want to see how or who actually has done RPA well. I know a few pointers, and I have a point, few pointers here, but I know Colin has brought us some excellent examples before I hand it over to him for that. What we learned is that there has to be a strategy up front which really gets into wave one, wave two, and wave three. And that is with leadership teams across the different functions and the different organizations who have um, the desire to actually improve uh, quality and speed and potentially shift uh, and, and reduce the silos. The other thing we've seen is, and now this is a lot of, this is a term from my past, it's interesting, um, the centralized or the center of excellence, the COE, um, that was used, I would say, almost like in 1994. I can see this term coming back, which is great. But having an, a center of excellence, which is responsible and to some extent understands and has a vision and understands what is done and can be done around and in support of digital transformation and with automation projects. That sometimes takes a different uh, perspectives and takes different persons and people. And I know Colin has some details on that later. And then last but not least, we've seen a lot of organizations, well, some organizations who made um, RPA as part of the digital workforce. And I know Colin is, has some examples. So hand it over to you to talk a little bit about, um, we have a fantastic slide here with lots and lots of customers. So Colin, tell us a little bit about your customer success and specifically some which you want to highlight. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a broad range here across uh, different industries. So I'll, I'll touch on a couple of, of general ones and then uh, I'm gonna focus in a little bit on something that's sort of much more recent related to the, to the COVID situation that we're in. So we've had, uh, you know, we've, we've got uh, customers using the digital worker for, for lots of different types of uh, processes and, and in lots of different ways. Jaguar Land Rover, for example, has saved millions of pounds by using digital workers to gather data. 
and to create algorithms that create insights into cost saving and commercial opportunities, which I thought was quite a nice innovative way of, uh, of using digital workforce. You've got people like Telefonica is uh, the really interesting. So Telefonica is using the digital workforce alongside its customer facing team to help um, speed expansion into new territories. So, so customer service agents at, uh, at uh, one of their Brazilian companies rely on their digital worker colleagues to process around 70, 73% of customer requests in real time, which obviously frees up the call center agents to, you know, to work on discussing new offers with their customers and, and things like that. Uh, and then you've got some, you know, people like Very Group that are using digital workers to detect fraudulent purchases based on customer behavior and account history so that they can intercept the delivery of goods to fraudsters and, uh, and protect customers. So there's a really sort of broad range of, of use cases here, and I think it kind of it, it hammers home the point that I was making earlier that I think people are really starting to to kind of expand their reach in terms of what the digital workforce is able to do and the complexity of those processes. What I wanted to do is to talk a bit more about the sort of COVID situation, because I think one of the things that COVID has done is it's obviously it's forced people to uh, to really accelerate digital transformation and to think about how they can use automation to kind of cope with the situations that they're faced with. So we, and I'm not going to, you know, I think this is actually true of most of the automation vendors in our space. So, you know, kudos to everyone really for, for stepping up. Uh, you know, we put together a COVID-19 response program, which was kind of set up for as a, you know, a pro bono way of providing something back to, to people who are looking for ways to, to basically cope with the uh, COVID situation. So we're donating digital workers and services to look at things like health services, education, financial services in a way that we could use uh, or customers could use these to help cope with the situation. And I think the most interesting one uh, or the one that really resonates with me is the NHS. So. The NHS team in one of the um, trusts in the UK, who are really solid um, and experienced customer of, of ours, runs on our Blue Prism Cloud platform. They really kind of stepped up their game around the COVID situation and, and delivered a number of processes, which really made a significant impact. So there was one process that was involved in antibody testing and accelerating actually sending applications for antibody tests and processing those which basically you know, reduced time down from a, a matter of days to a matter of seconds. We had a big uh, challenge around care homes in, in the UK, particularly you know, how, how the, there's an application process involved in essentially enabling the care homes to be able to cope with COVID. Uh, there was a huge amount of setup and administration uh, involved in that. And so the NHS Trust was able to automate that process and basically streamline, streamline the whole thing. So I think it's a really great example of where a uh, digital workforce is properly deployed and where you have the, the COE and you have the experience and you have the buy-in. There's a huge amount of, you know, more benefits that are more than just cost savings that can be delivered. So I'm, I'm quite keen on that, that particular use case as, a, as an example of somebody who I think has done it well. So do you know if the NHS had a Center of Excellence, Colin? Yes, yes, they do. Yeah, they have a very strong COE in this particular NHS trust um, who are very experienced and, uh, you know, that obviously helps a, a great deal. The COE concept is an interesting one, though. I'd be, in, I'd be interested in your views, actually, because 
I think the COE, the COE is necessary to make sure that you have the, the right level of uh, skills and that kind of, you know, those experienced people who know how to do this well. But I think one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, one of the challenges is how do you, how do you expand beyond that without getting this kind of shadow IT and this sprawl mm -hmm. of individual activities? So uh, interested in your views on how you see that balance. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I actually think um, having to start with a COA, but then continuously expand it and bring in additional resources project by project um, makes sense because what we don't want to create is, again, that elite team who is or which is, you know, called the COE and is kind of being looked at, oh, these guys, they're going to automate us away. So it's like with anything else, anything, we see the same in DevOps, right? We have the DevOps CE, the Center of Excellence, which starts by addressing certain areas and then expands into delivery and et cetera, et cetera. So my, my thought is to continuously ensure that new projects are being brought in and it's expanded. Just like your wave, you could expand uh, the COE just like that. I think that would be how I would recommend to proceed on that. So a few challenges also, again, from the research we found, and you can see them here yourself. I don't want to go through each of them, but there's a couple uh, I want to point out which I think are very interesting, and, of course, I'm interested in your thoughts, Colin, as well. But the one is only focusing on cost reduction, really stopping after wave one is one of the challenges I see, and then many organizations come back and they say, well, we didn't achieve the ROI, what we had intended. What is the big deal about this? Well, it's like um, signing up and into the automation uh, autobahn or going onto the autobahn, driving in second gear. You know, in Germany, if you want to go on the autobahn and you have a car, any car, any decent car, you can go up uh, to 150 kilometers or so. And you should be doing that because you should go the next step and to the next step. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And then the second one, I think I've also seen, and of course, that's to some extent human nature and how we in IT still try to figure out how to align with the business, which I think is an oxymoron because in today's organizations, IT is the business, but it's the silo mentality, which, which really, again, I'm going to look at myself, I'm going to look at my team, I'm going to look at my potential span of control. I don't really want to go out beyond that because something could happen, et cetera, et cetera. So th those are the couple of the ones I want to elaborate on. There's a few others there, but Colin, your thoughts on those? Yeah, um, I think the cultural aspect is, is really key. You know, if you start as we said earlier, if you start with just a purely technology-focused approach, then you're almost certainly going to get uh, you're almost certainly going to hit blockers along the way because people will uh, people will see it as a threat. You know, if you don't have that sort of cultural adoption of automation ingrained in the organisation, then people will see it as a threat. They'll push back on it, um, and you'll struggle to get the uh, the support that you need because you really can't do this without the people on board. You know, that's what that's what we're really seeing now, particularly as you get out of. Uh, as you get out of the low-hanging fruit area, you just can't do it without that sort of cultural shift. So putting in place uh, programs and thinking about innovative ways of incentivizing people to, uh, to, to think about automation, I think is really key. And the silo mentality one as well, I think that's, that's also um, that's the other one I would pick up. 
we really see the digital workforce as a, um, I think when you and I were talking the other day, actually you came up with a great term, which is silo buster, which I think I'm going to steal <laughs> now. Because uh, uh, that, that's really what it is. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, uh, that's really what it is, because the digital workforce is, is, is kind of able to, to transcend silos if you, if you deliver it in the right way. Uh, with that sort of cultural adoption and organizational adoption, then it has the ability to, to really start to uh, remove uh, some of those those uh, blockers between silos. So that all comes back to, again, having the right sort of organizational and cultural buy-in across the organization. I know we have another example. I, I have another question, and I want you to focus on that maybe when you talk about the example later on. In, and the question is, who are those thought leaders from a stakeholder perspective or, or the roles um, who actually usually kick that off? So keep that in mind when you – I think you have a, another example of a financial institution where you have done that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. All right. Let's boogie on because we've got uh, we've, we're 32 minutes. Thank you all again for hanging in here and spending the time with us cruising down the uh, the, the highway or the autobahn. Investment areas, of course, we at Research in Action always ask for what are the top investment areas. A bit of a you can see them in a, a bit of a priority order. Actually, they are in a priority order. So uh, to, uh, a few things I want to pick out, and then I'll ask you, Colin, again to, to comment. Certainly, you know, the delivery model of in the cloud, I think, is one which in across almost all of the software uh, automation things I'm studying, I'm finally, that, that is, I'm seeing that. I think that is important to highlight then I want to highlight, we talked a little bit about that, leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning to expand the scope. And I want to say there, I have tried to get my daughters into artificial intelligence and machine learning. And maybe it is because of my geeky nature, I could not get them uh, in, involved in this. One turned into architecture and the other one is a psychologist. So maybe it's these ITIL and DevOps books I had on my nightstand which turned them off. But yeah. AI and ML is certainly something organizations are looking for when they're making investment areas. And then, of course, personally, for me, this one was interesting. The integrations with DevOps and enterprise service management, of course, that makes sense because in DevOps, we need to ensure we've got quality and speed. That's really what where RPA can help. And then in enterprise services, be it in facilities and human, res human resources and legal, et cetera, et cetera, we try to streamline processes. And of course, that is uh, an augmentation. So from your thinking, anything you want to highlight and, and discuss here? Yeah, uh, well, if there's any consolation, I tried to get my son into uh, into AI and machine learning as well, and I <laughs> failed just just as badly. So uh, we're obviously missing a trick somewhere. But I did <laughs> want to talk about that. I mean, and also I think it, it it also links to your number one. I think what we're starting to see now is, if if I think back three years ago, uh, maybe even two, we'd quite often get asked, "What what AI do you have in your product?" And then you would uh, you'd kind of go back and say, "Well." What, what problem are you trying to solve? And then you would get blank looks, um, which uh, I always found quite interesting. So I, I think what's, what's starting to happen now is I think people are much wiser to um, where AI and machine learning fits into this picture. And really it's another, it's another tool that you have in your toolkit, which allows you to go to another level of complexity, you know, to go beyond those repetitive tasks and beyond those 
repeatable tasks and into things that are maybe less deterministic or or involving uh, predictions and that's that's you know the the interesting thing is that that supports the number one initiative self learning rpa that's a good example of a problem that you can solve using ai and machine learning so the way that we're sort of thinking about that is now that we have you know we have a a, a very mature ai labs as you probably be aware in blue prism that team has been focusing on solving some you know some some really sort of big problems for the time that they've been established and we're now kind of getting to the point where we just see we just see machine learning and ai as being something that's going to be kind of underpinning all of our products and it should really be invisible um, you shouldn't even know it's there so i think that's that's the one i would call out is is um seeing some seeing some evolution in the way that people are thinking about it and the way that they're using it mhm talking about evolution Vision into the future. As SVP of Emerging Technologies, you have the key to that. So chat with us a little bit about where do you see the vision of this? Yeah, sure. So um, we actually did, we're probably not as uh, as good at it as uh, as you are, Evelyn, but we did our own uh, survey uh, of around 6,000 executives and asked them about the potential of automation. And there's some interesting findings here that we found. So 93% of businesses are struggling to meet customers' demands and they see automation as a means to over, overcome those challenges. 80% of decision makers think that adopting automation will enhance their brand reputation, which is, you know, not something that I think either of us have called out as being a, a sort of obvious use case. 71% see automation as being the gateway to becoming more innovative. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how, how we position the digital workforce in that sort of space. And then 93% of executives plan to extend their use of automation. So I think it's clear that this is at the top of, it's at the, top of the agendas of um, most of the C-suites that we talk to anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that in a general, in a general uh, sort of terms, that's what you're seeing as well when you talk to the C-suite. Yeah, absolutely. So if we kind of drill down a little bit further into that, what we're trying to do is think about what does the enterprise of the future look like and how is it composed in terms of its organizational structure? What does it need to be able to operate? And we, we've got this concept that we talk about where um, we think that the future um, enterprise is going to be made up roughly of around a third people, a third digital workforce and a third systems. And we're kind of positioning the digital workforce in the middle there because we see it as being essentially um, uh, a force multiplier and an enabler of innovation, which goes back to one of the findings from the um, survey that we did of the executive group. And if we look at that in a little bit more detail, one of the reasons why we kind of position things that way is because there's a big difference between a digital worker or a robot that's isolated and maybe something that's running on your desktop and it has no connection to anything else and a digital workforce and a digital workforce we see as really being this this kind of uh, force multiplier effectively and why is it different well there, you can kind of categorize it into these 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 four areas really um, so it's smart and really this is because the uh, digital workforce is connected between uh, across itself so digital workers connected to each other but also connected to people and technologies, it means that digital workers can easily be enabled with new skills. And that's one of the sort of things that, um, that we've really been focusing on in terms of how we make that really easy for people to, uh, uh, to kind of enable. It's scalable. It's managed from an, uh, centrally from an enterprise platform. 
but also the digital workers are very versatile and they can be redeployed or they can be scaled to serve uh, different business demands or peaks and troughs. Uh, and they're also multitasking, so they can scale processes um, horizontally within their individual operating capability. Then you've got security. Um, I don't know if you still see this, but certainly with our enterprise customers, security is, if, if anything, it's becoming more uh, important, obviously, with the, uh, the challenges people have got to cope with or all the threats that are out there. So digital workers have got their own kind of security credentials and there's a clear audit trail um, of uh, everything that goes on. And then probably most importantly, businesses that deploy a digital workforce as opposed to just this kind of you know, individual approach, they really are the, the um, organizations that will achieve the, the biggest ROI. And that's you know, largely in part down to the kind of Lego brick nature of how you can put these things together. Uh, so the longer you use the platform and the longer you use the, the digital workforce, the easier it gets and the more ROI you're able to extract from it as you get more, more efficient. And then um, if we look further into the future, really, in terms of how that plays out, we're really looking at the digital workforce as being essentially a focal point uh, for intelligent automation. Uh, so again, because it's connected across everything, it can act as the focal point for intelligent automation and it can really streamline and enhance the productivity of um, processes across an entire organization. So we're no longer limited to um, you know, the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the repeatable and predictable tasks. Uh, we can start to apply automation to much more complex uh, and challenging activities. And um, you know, by serving, serving as a focal point for people, systems, and technology, um, and acting as a conduit for these more advanced cognitive capabilities, we really start starting to get beyond that uh, perspective, you know, the wave one perspective in and, and up towards wave three. I'm seeing yeah, something no. on the slide I'm intrigued by. Yes, it says example multiple stage multi-tech business processes built by business developers. So this really means that there is a shift in roles, a change in roles of, you know, people who are business analysts and people who are developers. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting um, era of evolution as well, I think, because I think everybody's aware of this term citizen developer. The way that we actually look at that is we, what we don't want to have is this disconnected approach to citizen development where you may develop an automation that enables you to be more productive, but your neighbor or your, you know, somebody who's sitting across the desk from you who does a similar role is creating exactly the same thing. What we really want is this sort of mesh or this, this network effect where everybody has access to a portfolio of capabilities. Uh, so we tend to refer to business developers, and I think that's, that's the sort of difference between uh, some of the approaches between different vendors. And, you know, you're right. I think one of the ways that you can get the buy-in across your um, organization and, and your people is make them part of the, make them part of the solution, you know, um, incentivize people to to actually think about automation in this way and not to see it as a threat. Yeah, excellent. Fantastic, thank so, you. Uh, so I was just gonna finish, uh, just gonna talk about another use case, uh, if that's okay. Um, and um, I, I, I picked one that I think is more uh, kind of in line with the intelligent automation side of, uh, of what we've been uh, talking about. So Masrec Bank is an interesting one. They, they took a, a really complex process, trade finance, involved in um, a, a pretty 
laborious screening process, um, as, as most finance processes do. Lots of documents that need to be gathered, lots of analysis, of, um, extraction of data and analysis of that data to be able to make a decision. So what they've done is that they've, um, essentially they've, they've realized that uh, vision of having the digital worker or the digital workforce as the conduit for the other intelligent automation capabilities. So they've enabled, they've enabled the digital worker to, uh, to use OCR, machine learning, and basically it's involved in that end-to-end -end process in the classification, the understanding, extraction of data, handing that off uh, to and from humans, and you can see some of the benefits here when this is done right. I mean, the, the uh, reductions in time and the customer impact uh, and the sort of, you know, the ROI that they're achieving from this is, is far beyond that sort of simple, oh, look, I've saved a couple of hours by automating a task. It goes way beyond that. Excellent. All right. This is a great example. I love the from 48 hours to three hours of processing time. I mean, I would call that agile. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. And 90%, right, 90% reduction in waiting time, supporting those who actually want to get uh, something from the MASHREC, I guess I say that correctly. It, that improves customer experience, customer satisfaction, all about that. So great example. Thanks for sharing that. All right, we have a few more minutes left, and um, there are a couple of things we want to leave you with. First one is, of course, critical success factors. We mentioned a few, but I just wanted to recap. So existing culture and leadership must be open to innovation. I know that's easy for us to say. There are some signs and there are some tests you can do or some checks relative to, to that. Have conversations with individuals and how open they are to uh, innovation. Many organizations do innovation, but again, that is a key important thing. Having the capabilities in terms of can they implement that, the skill and the knowledge. So again, that, that center of excellence, um, as we indicated already earlier, but also having the knowledge to see and understand processes and where is waste and how can we toil to some extent, sometimes used in the SRE world, how can we, do, we reduce toil and increase the quality and the speed of tasks? And then at the same time, how do we then shift the people who do these jobs to other functions? I think there is that kind of knowledge and skill and capabilities there. And of course, there is a lot of technology skills which are necessary to deploy these tools and uh, vendors help. Blue Prism has lots of skills uh, and, and help there. Then soliciting the right use case. And I think um, there is that those waves Colin has in his slides, I think, are great, but don't stop at that first use case or multiple use cases in that cost reduction. Keep going. But figuring out which one is the right one, again, is that, map, that, that ownership of those who actually do the job and stay and sit within those tasks. And many times it is just really asking questions to those people. Hey, what should be done? The, in the bank example, I'm sure people were saying it takes 48 hours for us to get that through. How can we resolve that? So doing journey maps and customer stories and things like that can help. Project management, always important. Colin mentioned ROI, having good ROI data, having good business case knowledge, um, learning from the case studies here. Blue Prism has some ex excellent case studies in seeing and recognizing could be, and then of course, you need to pick an RPA vendor. 
And for that, I actually brought a slide with me because that is what we do at Research in Action. We do something called a vendor selection matrix. It is a methodology we call and pride ourselves in the outside-in methodology, which means we actually start with um, the questions and asking key questions around strategy and execution to um, a large sample size that's 1,500. That gives us the baseline score for the vendor evaluation. And then we have the pleasure to get briefed by folks like Colin to tell us about what Blue Prisms is doing about strategy, what are they doing in execution. And here you can see in the study, Blue Prism made it into the, of course, top leader, number one. And there are actually three reasons I wanted to share with you because that's important. So the first one, Tourism had excellent customer satisfaction, actually had the highest customer satisfaction, 4.75 out of 5. And again, remember, this is not me as an analyst who says that with three customers being asked. This is from a very large sample size. So kudos to you guys there at Blue Prism. I want to congratulate you again. The second one, it had the highest score in breadth and depth of the solution. It's a 5 out of 5 compared to all the other vendors. So again, very, 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 very good. If you're looking for breadth and depth um, around RPA, there you go. And then last but not least, we talked a lot about integration. Well, we talked a little bit about critical success factors. We kind of missed the um, integrations and the ecosystem because RPA is and needs to integrate into a large ecosystem. And Tourism has a has received a great score of 4.75 out of 5 for the partner ecosystem and for innovation. So the innovation, Colin, goes directly to you. So you can, in your next uh, conversation <laughs> with your leadership, tell them, hey, guess what? <laughs> but anyway, That's so great. these are I'll these are the reasons. <laughs> <laughs> These are the reasons why Blue Prism actually uh, has received here the number one, and you can see the, the medals we give out as a little uh, kudo to to the vendors or to, the, to this particular vendor, to you guys. So we have a few minutes left for questions. Let me just quickly put our contact details up here, so in case folks are wanting to connect with us, we both are on Twitter. You see our Twitter handle here. I can be found also on LinkedIn. I know you can just find Colin there as well. So with that, there are a few questions. The one I really want to highlight is a little bit around this culture and perception of RPA. So the question is, how should we counter the perception within our organization that RPA is the path towards job reduction? Your thoughts, Colin, what, what would you say if that is uh, somebody from an enterprise who says, hey, we've got the challenge, what, what should we do? I think it comes back to looking beyond cost saving as um, uh, to, to make the benefits case. You know, I mean, we talked about the uh, the Mashrec example, where you can see that there's a that, you know there's an impact on uh, customer, the customer journey. There's a positive impact on the people who are performing that task. It's making their job easier, just freeing them up to uh, to do other things. So I think there are ways of there are different ways of positioning automation. Uh, that can turn it into uh, more of a positive. And actually what we're, I mean, again, interested in your views, but what we're not seeing, uh, we don't really see people 
organizations taking people out in a big way as a result of automation. What they're tending to do is they're using it to make their organization more efficient and then they're able to uh, to basically reuse those people on other tasks. Is that, is that consistent with, with how you're seeing things? Yeah, I actually would say, I would actually add, we see organizations make their teams happier. Think about some of the tasks. Uh, I go back into DBA work and doing some work on in a data center. Some of the tasks, I was like, hello, this is what I got a master's for? No, I don't think so. It made us very unhappy. So yes, I see. I think there is the the skills, the shifting of people into much more intelligent positions where they can make decisions, where they can make and work with customers. Really, a lot more rewarding work, and some of those things can be done. And I think the other one, as you already said, that silo. Sometimes it is easy to just work in our own group of sales. We don't connect with marketing. We don't necessarily talk to our technology team. But if we go and stand on, well, we don't do that anymore, but we used to stand on the coffee pot, collect and do coffee or tea, we had these great ideas of how we could actually improve things. But none of us really did it because we didn't have the tools to do it. And so I think that's the second, um, that silo busting and having having that and and put some value towards that, which really again ultimately marches us towards the improvement of customer experience or patient experience or you know citizen experience and of course employee experience. I think I would add that. Mm, yeah, for sure. Well, maybe I can throw in, throw one in your direction. Go uh, for from it. The uh, questions that we've got. So the question is, what is the best way to start an RPA initiative? Should it be narrow or should it be broad? What are you seeing in terms of the successful organizations that you talk to in terms of how they start? Yeah, so the the majority of them, there is always a budgeting prioritization challenge, right? With IT budgets, particularly now, they're, as we're in, the, uh, in this very challenging times. But in the past, before that, some of the projects in a particular range of dollars are moving easier uh, and are easier to get by a CIO or a CTO or a CMO is when they are narrow. And I think the project management as well is easier to handle that narrow scope because otherwise it, it becomes challenging, it becomes a scope creep, we have too many stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. And then really proving, and as, as I always say, have a delta, measure what you're doing now and then implement it and they have done that narrow implementation and showing the success and marketing that success for that next journey. So the narrow start is what I've seen most. Of course, I've seen a few who said, you know, this is really top down. Leadership said, this is it. We're going to do this big time, all hands on deck. But that's rather the exception than, um, as you pointed out in your waves, really that wave one, wave two, wave three is important. So that that's what I've seen. I have an Interesting question here. Hopefully, if this is a curveball for you, tell me to say curveball or shift gears or move to another question. But this individual is wanting to know, what does Blue Prism's RPA implementation look like? Do you need to be on-site to do mapping? Yeah, I saw that one. I'm, I'm I'm just, I guess the mapping could mean a couple of things, so I'll try and address both. 
the different perspectives it might be. <laughs> so if by mapping we mean the actual um, process development, the actual process design and development, then uh, generally speaking, no. You know, we, we have the ability to deploy both on-premise, on-premises and in the cloud. And generally speaking, once the implementation is done, the process designers will have access to that remotely. So it, it's not an on-site activity. There's another potential angle to that, which is around process discovery, which is obviously another growing area in the intelligent automation space. That's more a question of the approach that you're going to use. So if you're mapping out a process using technologies like process mining and a sort of a, a data um, approach to how you're going to do that, then obviously those technologies are generally something that you can run remotely. If you need to talk to people and those people are on site um, because there's not a documented view on the process, then that's something that potentially might require face-to-face -face time. But it's a, it's a bit of a nuanced um, question potentially, so uh, happy to take it up um, offline with whoever's posed that question uh, if you want to ping me on LinkedIn or Twitter if I didn't capture it. Fantastic. Well, we have very few seconds left. I don't want to just be cut off by the uh, lady from uh, Bright Talk because she does that. Um, <laughs> the automated voice who tells us that we're done. I want to thank you, Colin. This has been wonderful. Great conversation, great insight. Uh, thank you, Blue Prism. But also thank you to those who are viewing this live and who has given, who have given you not, not you have given us your time. We know your time is valuable. You know, we know that you have other things to do. So really thank you to all of you and those of you who are watching it as a repeat. Also thank you for your time. If you have questions, you can see here our Twitter handle. Feel free to reach out. And with that, happy November, I guess. Um, <laughs> Fall is yeah, I hope you get out. And I hope you get out on your Harley soon, <laughs> Evelyn. <laughs> yes, for, uh... that is the plan for this weekend. Likewise, to you, Colin. Thank you so much. Excellent. All and right. cheers. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Generation Digital Workforce. If you want to hear more about RPA, AI, and other cognitive technologies that are shaping the future of work, join us next time as we continue to go deeper on these topics with industry innovators and experts. To make sure you never miss a future episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help more people find valuable content. For show notes and more info, visit us at blueprism.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.